Well, let me just begin by saying it's great to be here at the Orchard. As Charlie shared earlier, Kathy and I moved here from uh, the Atlanta area uh, five months ago. Almost five months to the day we arrived on a Sunday afternoon after a long, long, long three-day drive with a 10-year-old lab in the back. Uh, but it went well, and we uh, landed here and live uh, up toward the CMC. And so the big issue for us was where will we go to church? You know, as a pastor, that's usually not a problem. <laughs> I mean, God calls you to a particular church. But when you begin to choose a church, which is uh, honestly the first time we've ever had this privilege, that's kind of tricky, right? I don't know about you, but it's not easy to find a church. I mean, there are lots of churches, but to find the right church for you is not always easy. And so we scouted around, and we landed here at the Orchard, and uh, we've been coming pretty much ever since. And uh, I've gotten to know Charlie and, and the, the staff. You know, you all are blessed with a really fine staff, and uh, there's a lot to be thankful for. But let me, let me tell you something about Charlie. Charlie and I have been getting together almost every week for coffee, and uh, one of the things I've discovered about Charlie is he has the gift of encouragement. Have you noticed that? He encourages people. He encourages his staff. He's a, 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 he really has the gift of encouragement, but sometimes that gift of encouragement can um, be a little bit more excessive and a little bit more, like I never was the pastor of a megachurch, just telling you here. It just, it just, it wasn't a megachurch. It was a great church. It wasn't a megachurch, but I uh, just want to clarify that there. But I do appreciate Charlie. Anyway, uh, it, it's, you know, we're going we're gonna to go on from there. Um, but, you know, when you have the opportunity to do a, what I call a one-shot deal, a one-sermon deal, uh, the, big, the big challenge is, it's like writing a term paper. The big challenge is, what in the world do you preach on? What do you teach on? And, you know, this is a very big book with a lot of options. And, uh, and so, I, 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 one of the times that Charlie and I had lunch, I gave him four options. I said, here are four different sermons. And so, you're getting the one that he chose, just so you know. Um, and, and, but seriously, as I thought and as I prayed about what would I share in this one-shot opportunity, uh, this passage from 1 Peter came to mind. Uh, and we're going to look very carefully at 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, it should be up on the screen here. I'm going to read it to you just so that we uh, kind of all are on the same base. Uh, or you can look at that little Bible in the, the back of your chair. So listen, this, this is God's word for us. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a cr the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. 
All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he will lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's take a minute and go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we all come this morning to this place to worship you. You who are the creator, you who are the sustainer, you are the one who, who created each and every one of us, just as we are. And we come with uh, different mindsets, different things on our mind or in our heart this morning. We all come differently. Some of us come and we're kind of on the top of the mountain, we're on the top of the world and things are going great. And we give you thanks and we give you praise and others of us come and we're kind of at the other end of the spectrum. And it's tough and it's hard, but we're here. And then others of us come and we're just sort of in the middle there. We're floating along and things are going okay but we're all here to worship you. And now as we come to this time where we, we set aside a few minutes just to think and to listen and to uh, open our mind, our heart, our soul to you, we pray that your word would speak to each and every one of us, no matter where we are, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what distraction may be going on outside the walls of this building, help us to focus our attention just for the next few minutes on the message that you have for me, each of us. Speak, Lord, for we're listening. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at this passage from 1 Peter chapter 5, but before we look at that, we have to understand the context. If you just look at a particular set of verses, seven verses in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, it's easy to lose sight and, and not really understand the background of why is Peter writing and who is he writing to. So let me give you a little context. Peter is writing about 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He's writing to those who are Jewish believers and also Gentile believers who are in the churches of what was that, at that time known as Asia Minor, which today is modern-day Turkey. And he's writing this letter to a number of different churches, and he's going to send this and fire this letter off to them. Now, what you need to know is the people that he's writing to are struggling. These people are people who have been imprisoned because of following Jesus. These people have been tortured because of following Jesus. And you can well imagine, they are discouraged. It is a tough time. It's a very unsettling time. It's a very uncertain time. And so Peter writes this letter, and essentially it's a letter of encouragement. And there's a central theme that sort of winds its way throughout this letter, and it's the theme that you need to stand firm in your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think kind of where it applies to us today, there are a lot of different ways, but one way it is when things don't work out the way you planned, 
certainly wasn't working out the way that the people in the churches in Asia Minor had planned. But when things don't work out the way that you planned or hoped or dreamed, I think the message for us is to stand firm in our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The one who is never changing. When everything else in the world changes, when our world sort of gets very shaken, he remains the same. And so he says, stand firm and walk in the way of the Lord. So my first challenge to you, and what you'll find if you listen to me very often, I like to give challenges to people. My first challenge to you is this week, go back and read this short little letter that Peter wrote to the people. It's only five chapters. It's not a tough task here, folks. You can do it in five days if you do one chapter a day. But look and read the beginning because what we're going to look at now is at the very end of the letter. It's sort of his final comments, his parting words of wisdom, if you will. And that's what I read just a few moments ago. Last November, I had the privilege of flying from Atlanta to Dallas to attend the wedding of a young guy who grew up in our church. Um, his mom was my right-hand person my administrator at the church where I was serving. And uh, I'd gotten to know Tim. Tim was his name. I got to know Tim very well because um, he was a high school athlete. I coached him. Uh, I coached our church basketball team uh, with our youth guy. And uh, I got to know Tim very, very well. And so he invited me to his wedding in Dallas. I have I've had two mentors in ministry over the last 35, almost 36 years of ministry before I retired in, in, in February. And uh, one of them, his name is Bob. And I'm going to show you a picture of Bob. Bob lives in Dallas in a retirement community. Bob is either 90 or 91. I'm not sure exactly when his birthday is because when I saw him, he was 90 years old. And I thought, I'm going to Dallas for this wedding. I'm going to block out a section of time, and I'm going to make an effort, and I'm going to go see Bob, and we're going to visit for a while. And this is uh, our, our short little selfie visit that... Um, that, that I took. I met Bob over 30 years ago. And actually, my wife Kathy met him first. Uh, we were in a small, struggling church in the Rust Belt of Ohio, and uh, he was one of the conference leaders and speakers at a conference in Pennsylvania that Kathy and a few of our other church members attended. And uh, he spoke at the conference, and uh, Kathy was struck by what he said, and so she made an effort and had an opportunity to have lunch with him and sat at his table. And she began to fire questions at Bob, question after question after question. We were, we were in our first church. We were green, straight out of seminary. I mean, I made some really dumb mistakes back then. I Just really dumb mistakes. And uh, so Kathy was asking all these questions, and, and suddenly Bob just sort of perked up, and he looked at her and he said, you have to bring your husband to my place in St. Louis, and I need to show you our church, and I, I want to I basically teach you. And so Bob took us under his wing, and his wife's name was Dolores. And for 30 years, there was this mentor and mentoree, and he was the experienced guy, and I was the young guy. And for 30 years, he walked us beside us in ministry. He came to our first church and led what we called back then a lay renewal weekend. In a Baptist church, it would be called a revival. But in a Presbyterian church, you can't use that term. 
You just can't get away with that. And so we call it a renewal. Um, and then uh, when it came time for us to sense that God was calling us uh, to a new position, he basically connected me with the pastor of the church in Florida where I ended up becoming an associate pastor. He got me my second job. And then we brought him to that church in Florida and he led a uh, Christian Ed conference. And then when we felt God to lead us uh, away from the church in Florida to a church in South Dakota, which, you know, let me tell you, people thought we were absolutely off the wall. They thought we were nuts. We were leaving the Gulf Coast of Florida, two miles from the beach, to go to Rapid City, South Dakota. They thought we were absolutely crazy. But I invited him, and he came, and he did a seminar on stewardship. And so you can see, all these years, time and time again, he was building into both Kathy and I and his wife as well. There were times when I would call him and say, Bob, I just don't know what to do. What do you think about this? And he would give me some sage, wise advice. There were times when he would challenge me. And I didn't want to be challenged like he challenged me. Bob made a profound, positive impact in my life. I want you to think about it for a minute. I would be willing to bet there is someone or someones, one or more persons, who have likewise had a profound, positive impact in your life. It may have been a parent. My parents were like that for me growing up. It may have been a sibling. It may have been a, um, a teacher, may have been a coach, may have been a choir director or a band director, it may have been a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, it may have been a neighbor, it may have been a friend, but someone, I would be willing to bet, for each and every single one of us, has had that profound, lasting, positive impact in your life. I'm absolutely convinced that as those of us who claim Christ to be our Lord and Savior, those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ, I am absolutely convinced it is his desire that we become that lasting, profound, positive impact in the life of someone else. I'm absolutely convinced that most likely, every single one of us wants to make a difference in this life. We want to leave a legacy, and this is the positive impact that you and I can have on other people. This is what Peter is showing in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. For the next few minutes, I want us to look at several different action steps that we can take as individuals so that we can improve our impact on others. And the first one I want to draw from this text that I want you to see is that we need to start or strengthen your service. Now, if you go back to read the very first chapter of the book of 1 Peter, he, he kind of establishes his authority, and he says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what I want you to see in this particular text, in, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he shifts that authority a little bit, and he says, now to you elders, I, I am an elder as well, I'm saying this to you. 
He's writing these words to the elders, the leaders of the church. But what I want you to see is, it's not just limited to the leaders of the church. It speaks to each and every one of us who are seeking to follow Christ. He says these words in verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Did you hear what he said? He says, be shepherds of God's flock. Now, maybe he used this terminology because he remembered hearing the words of Jesus when Jesus said, feed my sheep to his disciples. Or maybe when he heard that Jesus had said, watch over my flock or take care of my lambs. You see what he's saying? He's saying, serve other people. You know, we, uh, we love our new life in Colorado. What's not the like, right? I mean, if you live in the valley, what is not to like? It is a great place. Um, but after leaving the greater metropolitan area of Atlanta and moving uh, to Glenwood, uh, it's a little bit different. And sometimes it feels a little small. And so when those times happen, Kathy and I need to go to the big city of Junction. And when we go to Junction, we always, always, always stop at our favorite southern restaurant for lunch, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> what can I say? Now, see, we were privileged because the Chick-fil-A headquarters was a 25-minute drive from our house, and there were Chick-fil-A's everywhere, and we were regulars at Chick-fil-A. And if you've ever gone to Chick-fil-A, you know this. Whoever, doesn't matter who it is, whatever person at Chick-fil-A takes your order always starts with a qu question. You know what that question is? How may I serve you? It is part of that corporation's culture and DNA. How may I serve you? And then, if you listen carefully, at the conclusion of your visit, they always say, it's my pleasure. How may I serve you? It's my pleasure. As I look at our country, I do not believe that our country places a high value on service. I think our country and our culture places a very high value on me being served but not so much on me being the server. I think about it for a minute. When you think of service, like when I think of service, I think of a, of a waiter or a waitress serving me. You know, I've come to realize, because we had a number of, of, of folks that did that kind of work in our last church, they're not called waiters and waitresses anymore, they're called servers. I think one of the challenges that we in our culture have is we are more than willing to be served, but we're not near as willing to do the serving. 
But it seems obvious and clear to me as I read the scripture that there is this theme that goes throughout the scripture. It's woven in and out of the pages of the scripture that says you and I are called to serve if we're going to follow Jesus. And if we are going to have a positive, lasting, profound impact on other people, then we need to start, if we aren't already, or we need to strengthen our service. And we should not do it out of duty or obligation, but rather willingly, as the text says. Sort of like the Chick-fil-A. It's my pleasure. Since we moved to Valley, and uh, over the last couple months, I've had the privilege of volunteering to help coach uh, a softball team up in Basalt, the Basalt Girls High School softball team. And it has really been fun. I have really, really enjoyed it. Um, but one of the things that I've discovered is, usually I'm kind of in charge of things, or have been recently for like the last 25 years. And as a volunteer, I'm not in charge of anything. And so the first thing that I say when I come to a practice to the other coaches is, how can I help? How can I help? What do you want me to do today? If you and I are going to start, or if we're going to strengthen our serving, then this is the question we need to ask. How can I help? How can I help my spouse? How can I help my child? Or in my case, how can I help my elderly parent? How can I help my coworker? How can I help my boss? Or on the flip side, how can I help my employee? How can I help my fellow student if you're a student? How can I help my team member? And then let's take it a step farther. And as Kathy and I have spent time over the last five months at the orchard, um, we've asked that question, how can we help? And so we've had the privilege of helping with the children's ministry here. Serving snow cones at First Fridays. It's been fun. But I want you, if you're a regular attender of, of the orchard, I want, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, how can I help? Or rather, how can I serve here at the orchard? Now, you may feel like, well, I don't have a clue. Um, and so let me give you a couple ideas because I contacted the staff and I said, give me a few ideas of areas of need in your area of ministry. And so uh, Stacy, the children's director, children's pastor, said, um, we have need for teachers at all levels in the children's ministry. And then she went on to say, and she said, we have need for people to volunteer at outreach events. And she said, and we have need in the area of administrative, uh, we need administrative people and creative people to kind of work behind the scenes. There are three opportunities of service here at the orchard. And then I, I contacted Kara, who was up here playing the piano earlier. He's, right now she's up with the youth up in uh, one of the rooms upstairs. And she said, uh, we need help in the student ministry for the power lunches on Friday for the high school. 
And then she said, and we need to have people thinking and praying about the opportunity to go on the mission trip coming up to Bolivia and Haiti. And then I asked Daniel, the associate, your associate pastor, I said, where, where do you see the need where people could help and serve? And he said, we need people in growth group as leaders and also as hosts and also as apprentices. And then he went on to say, and we need some people to help in the lawn care, in cutting grass and weed whacking. You see, my friends, if you and I open our eyes, if we open our ears, if we open our heart to the opportunities that are here, either here, here, or here in the community, they abound. You don't have to look very far. You just have to open your eyes. And I realize you, you and I, we can't do everything. But here's the deal. We can do something to serve. If we want to have that lasting impact, we need to start and strengthen our service. Don't wait to be asked. You ask the question. How can I help? Second action step that I think we can draw from this text for how we can improve our impact is this. We need to stay humble. If you look at the fifth and the sixth verses in the text, let me, let me highlight uh, portions of both of them. Uh, Peter writes, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then he continues in verse six and says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. Humility is not putting yourself down. It's not belittling yourself. Humility is not giving up your ambition and your dreams and your drive. Humility is depending on someone else. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Charlotte, North Carolina, where my 90-year-old uh, mother is in a, an assisted care center. And I have to travel back and forth to help my sister out, who's caring for her as well. And um, I, I sat at the end of the runway uh, at Junction, because I was flying Junction to Dallas, Dallas to Charlotte, and I sat at the end of the runway, and as I always do before a flight, I had a little prayer. You know how that is, right? And, uh, and I realized at ground level, I was depending on those pilots to get me to my destination safely. And obviously I'm here, so they did a good job, right? Um, but then I realized, beyond the ground level, at the 30,000-foot view, really, the person I was depending upon was the Lord God, that he would take me there safely. Humility is recognizing that you really aren't in charge of everything. Humility is recognizing um, that ultimately, God is in charge. Surely you and I must do our part and we must use the gifts and the talents and the abilities that he's given to us. Um, but ultimately, God is in charge. And sometimes I think we take ourselves a little too seriously. I really do. When I retired in February, I retired from a church called Evergreen Church in Peachtree City, Georgia, which is a suburb sort of of Atlanta. 
And uh, I was the lead pastor there, and we had planted that church four years ago. And um, I had the privilege, and I say privilege, uh, to serve and to lead with some very talented and extremely creative people. And so I want to show you a picture of three of them. On your left is uh, Tim. He was our associate pastor. In the middle is Corinne, and she was our children's director. And on your, right, on your right is Jonathan. Jonathan was our director of youth and creative development. And that creative development, he, he was an artist, but he was also an athlete, this really interesting combo type guy. Jonathan was with me and served with me for eight years. Long time. He was... Um, all three of them, I called them the three amigos, and sometimes I called them the three stooges, um, because they were just so fun, and yet they, they, they're, you know, they're millennials, obviously, and you know, I loved them, they were great. But Jonathan, about two years ago, decided that he'd give me a nickname. Now, see, when you, when you live in the South, things are a little bit more formal than out here in Colorado. When I first got there, uh, there were some people that tried to call me Dr. Miller, and I said, you know, you can just call me David. And none of, the people didn't like that, and so they decided to call me Pastor David. And I thought, okay, I can, I can live with that. If you, if you can't go the informal David, I can, I can do the Pastor David. So he shortened it about two years ago to PD. And so, and it was amazing how it caught on. Suddenly, and not just the staff, but like a lot of people were calling, hey, PD, hey, PD, hey, PD. And, you know, um, at first that was a little humbling, um, but I decided, you know, I decided to look at it as it's a term of endearment, right? And uh, so when he really wanted to get me, he would respond by saying, when something happened, Jonathan would respond by saying, hey, PD, you know, you could be my dad, And I would respond by saying, yeah, I know, Jonathan, thank you so much for reminding me of that. And you know, for a long time, I had no problem with humility. I, I, was, I was being humbled like that. Um, this past week, um, in, in our coaching um, uh, with Basalt, we traveled to Meeker. And we were playing the Meeker team, and uh, there was a part, and, and I say this because this humility thing, it's not a one-shot deal, is it? I mean, have you ever noticed that? Um, you get humbled, and then you get humbled, and you get humbled. So anyway, we're up in Meeker, and um, um, I'm helping coaching the team, and I work primarily with the pitchers. And so, um, change in innings, and the catcher had just been at bat, which meant she didn't have her gear on, so they, they needed somebody to warm up the pitcher, right? So I took my glove out, and I warm them up a lot anyway during practice, and, and I went behind the plate, and the, the umpire standing right behind the plate, and I'm, I'm down here like this, catching the balls, and he looked at me, and he says, you got five pitches. In other words, the, each pitcher between innings is only allowed to throw five pitches before you have to start. He said, you got five pitches, and then I want to see you throw the ball to second. <laughs> I looked at him, I said, I'm too old to, for that. I'm not doing that. Humility happens, doesn't it? It happens a lot. And if we're going to have a positive, profound, lasting impact on other people, you know what? We need not to take ourselves so seriously. And we need to stay humble. 
third and final action step that I want you to see from this text for improving your impact is this. And this is a hard one. We need to stop worrying. We see it in verse 7. Cast all your anxiety. In other words, all of your worries. Cast it all on him because he cares for you. You know, David wrote portions of the Psalms, and he, he put it this way in Psalm 55, verse 22. He says, cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Now, I am well aware of the fact that there are a number of us in this gathering this morning who worry is not a big deal in your life. It's just not. But I'm also well aware that for a number of us who are sitting in this room today, worry is a major factor in your life. And this text says, cast all your cares, all your worries on him. I came across this story and I thought it might fit because of Colorado. But the story goes that there were some guys fishing, ice fishing in the winter. And uh, they were out on the lake, and they were cutting their holes in the ice and dropping their lines down. And there was an older gentleman, and he was ice fishing, and he was, he was getting not a bite, not a bite at all. And he looked just 20 yards away, and there's this young kid over there, and he's just pulling one fish out of another out of the lake. And he can't figure out why in the world is this young Turk catching all this fish, and I'm experienced. I know how to fish. I can't get a fish. I can't even get a bite. So he yells down to the kid, and the kid, he says to the kid, hey, how are you getting all those fish? How are you catching all these fish? All of a sudden, the kid bent over, and he spit something out. He said, got to keep your worms warm. <laughs> you got to think about that one for a minute. I know it's kind of gross, but here's the deal. Too many of us have a, habit, have a habit of keeping our worries warm. Peter gives us some wise advice in this text. He says, cast all your cares. Cast all your worries on him because he cares for you. I think the problem that many of us have is we'll cast that worry out and then we'll reel it right back in. And then we'll cast it out again, and we'll reel it right back in. He says, we need to cast it, and then let it go. And part of the casting is that it's not just about us letting the worry go. We need to cast those cares upon him through the function of prayer. And then we need to pray again, and we need to pray again. And you know, sometimes I think that our prayers are, are cast, this broad cast, like, Lord, help, which is good. But I think if we're going to improve our impact and we need to stop worrying, we need to be more specific in our prayers that we cast to the Lord. Have you known, I've noticed this. Oftentimes, when people are praying, they'll say, be with Joe. Be with Mary. And that's fine, but wouldn't it be more effective or couldn't it be more effective if we were more specific in our prayer? Lord, I am worried about this person. I am worried about this job. I'm not sure that I'm going to have a job, and I'm really worried about this. 
Be more specific in your casting of your cares and your praying to the Lord. Be more, mis- more specific in praying for your child who's struggling or your elderly parent that you're not sure what, your, what their next step is with them. Be more specific in your prayer for that friend that you know is having a tough time when they say to you, I'm fine, and you know they're not. Be more specific um, for these students and these teachers that are soon to go back to school because I have to tell you, some of them are extremely anxious and worried. Worry allows our problems to work on us. Prayer gives us the opportunity and God to work on the problem. Did you catch that? Worry just allows that problem to work on us and work on us and work on us, but prayer gives us the opportunity with God to work on the problem. I want to challenge you. When you start worrying, it's not if, it's when, replace that worry with prayer. Not too long before we left Atlanta, I was... started up my car and I started to drive away one day and I noticed on the dash there was a yellow uh, alert light that came on and it told me that the tire pressure in one of my tires was low. And uh, so I took that seriously and I got my little tire gauge out and I went around to all my tires and I discovered the front passenger tire was low, significantly low. So I went to a gas station, I filled it up. Actually, I overfilled it intentionally because then I was going to watch it to see how fast it would decrease in tire pressure. And after about a day, I noticed it had dropped a number of different pounds and I realized there's something going on. So I took it to the tire shop that I've worked with before and uh, they took the tire off and they found this little half inch screw that was just, I mean, just tiny, tiny little screw that had punctured the tire and had a slow leak. Have you ever noticed that something so small can have such a big impact? I thought about that. If I'd left that screw in that tire and I was driving down the interstate at 70 miles an hour, how large of an impact that little tiny screw would have if that tire blew. Something very, very small can have a very, very large impact. We have um, in our family a few little, what we call axioms or little statements, value statements. One of them that I have uh, lived with for years is start slow, but dig deep. Something small can have a very, very profound, positive, big impact down the road. So here's my last challenge for you today. In your bulletin, you have a little sheet. Pull it out for me. This is not a rhetorical statement. It's, it's really kind of direct. It says sermon notes. And here's my last challenge to you. Put one, two, three. My challenge is this. Write down three names of three people that you want to have a lasting, profound impact on.
picture you saw a few minutes ago of those three amigos, they were on my impact list to have a positive impact on. I need a new list because I'm not around them anymore. And so I'm in the process of making my top three. And maybe it's four or five, I don't care. I want to give you something practical that you can walk out this door that every single one of us, no matter where we are in our life, can have that positive impact on others. And here's the deal. It doesn't have to be something huge to have that positive impact. It may be something very, very small. Write down the names of those three or four or whatever people Keep it someplace so that you can see it. Now, you may not want it up on your mirror so everybody in the house can see it, but you put it someplace where you will see it to remind you, these are the, th- the people that I really am going to strive to have a positive impact, a lasting, profound impact on. And then start small. But dig deep. You know, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a minute. Night in which Jesus was betrayed, you know the text, he took his disciples and they had this meal. And he said to them in a symbolic way, this bread represents my body which is broken for you and this blood, or rather this cup, In our case, this juice represents the shed blood that I'm going to shed for you. And what I want you to see in that memorial meal with his disciples, he was sealing the deal of his true commitment to them. As you come and you take the bread and as you take the juice, let the outward sign of those elements be an inward symbol of the significance of the commitment that Jesus made on your behalf to seal the deal with you. And then let this meal be a symbol of you sealing the deal with him, with your commitment to him, as well as your commitment to have a lasting impact on others. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can take from it to apply to our life today. Help us Help us to take steps to have a positive impact on others, a lasting impact. And let us give thanks for those who have had that impact on us. But most of all, we give you thanks for you and for the commitment you've made to us and the call that you've called us to love you and to love people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.